Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 470. And this week I'm joined by one of my favourite people in the world. Me and John aren't like mad tight. We're not talking every day. But I really feel a connection with this dude, his work, his outlook, his honesty, and just the way he carries himself. So my guest today is John Bradley West, who was on years ago. I said last week, I'm on a bit of a run. I've had Frankie Boyle, Paddy Considine, and now John, all guests who were on four, five, six, seven years ago, and are back to talk about new things. And when I last spoke to John, Game of Thrones was about to come to an end. That was a big event (laughs) with mixed reactions and views and opinions and I'm sure feelings on the side of of John and all involved. And we get into all of that. It's a really good chat. If this is the first episode you've tuned into, check out the previous episode with John. Check out both of the previous episodes with Lena Headey. Um, Ed Scrine was one of the really early guests. I'm thinking of people who've been in Game of Thrones. And basically just have a browse. We've got an amazing list of actors in in our back catalogue and comedians and just generally a load of great people. So go and have a browse. You can support the podcast by buying merch over at speechdevelopmentrecords.com or by um, becoming a patron over at patreon.com forward slash scroobiuspip or just come out and hang with me on Twitch. That's not necessarily supporting the podcast, but it's a nice place to be. I'm spending a lot of hours over there lately. Twitch.tv forward slash scroobiuspipio. Um, and you can join the Discord over there, which is its own little kind of social media community. Yeah, there's loads of stuff going on. John was on to talk about the Railway Children, uh, the return. Um, and we talked j- just before the cinematic release, but I banked this because of schedule till um, just before the on-demand release. So, yeah, hope you enjoy that element of the conversation. As said, we talk about a lot of things here. And there's a lot of exciting stuff in the pipeline for John. But just in general, it was nice to have a catch up with the lad because, as I said, that first time we chatted was the first time we'd sat down and have a com- had a conversation. And the only time, really, in, in like face-to-face. But s- since then, yeah, he's another one, similar to Paddy and F- Frankie in previous weeks, that we keep in touch sporadically and, I don't know, I, I just I like this dude, and this is a conversation that has been on my mind regularly s- since we recorded it. So I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's just get into it. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 470, with John Bradley West. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction this piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. And here we go. Right, I'm here today with John Bradley. How are you, sir? Mate, I'm very well. It's so nice to get to speak to you again. How's things? It's really good, mate. I'm really excited to chat to you. It's a weird one because as as a film nerd, I'm really excited to talk to you about all the projects you've been working on recently because you've worked with some of my absolute idols and absolute favourites. But... The other half of me, you know, I can consider you a pal. I'm just excited to catch up and see how you are and how you've been. So 
Uh, what's been going on? Are you good? Are you enjoying the promo runs? Is everything well? Yeah, mate, I'm very well. It's been a bit of a been a bit of a strange year actually. It's been quite a full on year. I've been yeah. I've been shooting this um, Netflix show with Benny Off and Weiss since um, Three Body Problem. It's called since October. That's with, still with going. Benedict Wong and and loads with of Benedict really good Wong. people. I'm excited for it. So many good people. So many sort of. Bit of a bit of a, a thrill, really, because it's with David and Dan, my old Game of Thrones bosses, and so they've been very loyal to their crews. They brought a lot of the same crew over, so there's a lot of familiar faces, but a lot of cool new people to work with as well. Benedict Wong, Aza Gonzalez, yeah. Jonathan Price, yeah. people like that. So I'm, I'm having a blast. But in amongst all that, so that's going to be by the time we finish that, that's going to be a, probably a nine, ten month shoot. And yeah, this is this is my third Railway Children Return. Is my third film to come out this year. So I've been. I've had three films to promote and I've been shooting all this time as well. So it's been quite full on, but one of those things where everything sort of comes to a head at around the same time. And after this, I'm due a bit of a, a rest stuff, I think. Rightfully so. And 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 you've touched upon it there because last time we spoke on the podcast, kind of Game of Thrones was coming to an end and we were talking about what the future might hold because that was obviously a huge part of your life for a long time. But from the outside, it looks like the future's been pretty... F- fucking decent so far as as you say moonfall alongside halle berry michael panna patrick wilson marry me alongside j-lo and owen wilson you touched upon a three-body problem and the railway children with living legends sheridan smith tom courtney jenny agatha yeah it's been going all right right how are you exhausted are you you surviving yeah no it's it's been okay i remember the last time we spoke i think we spoke in sort of 2016 last time so i think i was just about to start season seven of game of thrones so i sort Mm -hmm. of knew that that was coming to an end and it's sort of a strange one really like going forward from that i i I just didn't think that there was a guarantee that i'd ever really do anything again yeah just because I i think it's almost because i come from sort of a working class background in manchester i always wanted to be an actor but didn't really know that there was a blueprint didn't know that there was a way into it i almost felt like the fact that i'd even got to be in an hbo show seems like so beyond my wildest dreams really that it almost felt a bit greedy to expect anything more really it's almost as if i've been given this chance lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place again and and if that's the end of it and if now i just don't do anything else again and i just go on to a normal job or whatever i just think that i i I felt i felt so such a little sense of entitlement that i'd ever get anywhere anyway yeah it almost felt like that was enough almost but yeah coming out of that and yes i must admit like I did struggle a bit with the sense that being 30 when it finished, just getting a sense of, oh, well, that's it then. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like probably, probably the best and biggest thing I'll ever do, it's over. And when I was doing that last round of promo for the last season of Game of Thrones, it was so weird because having to suddenly think everything about Game of Thrones and the biggest part of my life, it's all in the past now. Mm. There's nothing in the future. And if I'm ever yeah. going to think about Game of Thrones, I'll always have to be backwards looking and... I just, I just, I just, I just thought that was it, and the momentum coming out at the end of the last season seemed to sort of dissipate, and yeah, I just genuinely was preparing myself to just go fade into obscurity, and then, as you say, a few months later down the line, J Lo got in touch through her people and said, "We're doing this romantic comedy, and we'd like, we'd like John to to come aboard and play her manager in it." Which it's just, it's just, it's just weird in it because you don't think that you know, being a being a lad from Manchester and also shooting, and we know that Game of Thrones was a big show. Shooting that in Belfast, you don't think that people like Jennifer Lopez even know who you are. You no, know what I mean? so that's a crazy a one, crazy one, complete left field call. And 
it sort of rescued me out of that fog and that sort of downtime that I had after Game of Thrones when I thought I was finished. And she really pulled me out of that. And I'll always be grateful to her for that. And it was J-Lo coming off the back of Hustlers as well, which I think is an absolute career high for her. I think she's genuinely an icon. I think in many ways, hugely underrated. But um, coming off the back of Hustlers, which was an am- amazing film, that's a real that's a real big time to get a, <laughs> a call yeah. or email from J-Lo and say, we'd like you to do this exactly and i think one thing that i just loved about working with her was the fact that you just realize when you're with her and you spend time with her and you work with her that all of her success and the places that she's got to none of that's an accident you will never find anybody who works harder than her on one of her sets she she really does she really leads the company she's such a boss and she was she was a producer on that movie as well so she was in charge of everything you don't really get to be at that level without without knowing the sacrifices that need to be made and knowing that you need to work harder than anybody else there. Yeah. And I learned a lot from her in terms of what it, I mean, I'm probably never going to use the lessons that I learned from her because very few people get to that sort of rarefied place, but it's not an accident. She's worked incredibly hard and after everything she's achieved, she still continues to make every single second that she has on camera as good as it can possibly be. And I think that's really inspirational. And I think inspirational is the, the right word because... Are you speaking there of coming out of Game of Thrones and going, right, I'm 30 now kind of thing, and, and, and where does my career go? I've had bits of that as because I've got into acting so late. The pandemic, for example, I was like, right, I'm turning 40 in the pandemic. That's a big change. That feels like a big change in, yeah. in, in, in who you are and, and what your opportunities might be. But in the same year, J-Lo in Hustlers and Brad Pitt, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, of course. Both gave some of the best performances you've ever seen, and they were both 50-year-olds, as said, putting in career-high performances and looking better than any humans have ever looked on screen. (laughs) (laughs) Like the pair of them. It was like... and, And it was. It sounds stupid because obviously they're superstars anyway but it was a real motivational thing to go no it's not there's nothing it's not that now you're at this point there's only this kind of role available it's like there's so many characters to play and stories to be told that seeing people like that who could put their feet up at this stage and go all right i'm good i'm done or could phone in rubbish films get a big payday do you know what i mean they're both at that point in their career where they could switch off that hunger and go, I've done my work, now I'll just yeah. reap the benefits. But neither of them, both of them in that same year were like, nah, I'm still fucking hungry as I've ever been. Partly because yeah. of their amazing bodies as well. They were probably starving. It must have been exhausting <laughs> to maintain that. Yeah, well, both of I, their looks. I, I, I wouldn't know. But uh, it's sort of, a, it's sort of, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because I, th- I think, I think, a lot of people in, in various different fields get to that level as well. It's a bit like you get you get footballers. You get some footballers who are who are loyal to one, just like a Harry Kane, for example, yeah. player who's loyal yeah. to one club. It can go one of two ways, can't it? When they when, when they reach a sort of certain point in their career, it's a bit like either they can just decide, well, this is me now. I'm just going to be a one club man, and I'm just going to see out the rest of my career mm-hmm. as a as a sort of as, as a sort of local hero, if you like. Or they think actually, I want to finish my career having won something. Yeah. I want to finish my career with sort of trophies to my name and they go in search of that. And I think that that happens with actors as well. They reach a point where they can either go, they can either just be comfortable and just accept the sort of easy roles and the paydays, or they can think, well, for this last bit of time that I've got, I'm going to, I'm going to really go for it. I'm going to really try and make a mark and I'm going to do my best work because I know that I don't really have anything to prove anymore, but I just don't want to look back at a career that kind of peters out. 
Yeah. I, I, I want to sort of, you know, and, you know, and, and in terms of TV, I don't know if you spoke about this last time, but in terms of TV, especially, especially about sort of 10 years ago, for so many actors, they became world famous in TV in their 40s and 50s after mm. being perfectly good sort of, you know, great actors. We're talking about, you know, Gandolfini and, and Brian Cranston and, and yeah. Peter Dinklage as well. Yeah. They, they were all great, respected actors, but their 40s, 50s was then when they became globally iconic. And I just like that about the acting industry, that as long that as long as there are stories that need telling, they need people to tell those stories. And yeah. And it's not it's not it's not bound by anything like that. Good stories are good stories. And if it's a if it's a fifty year old man, a fifty year old woman playing needed to play that part, then they're gonna get it. And I think that's a real as well as what makes this business sort of a much more level playing field than some others really. I completely agree. Was was there any part of you that as you were coming out of Game of Thrones, that that made a conscious choice that you wanted to to, to do some some films because, as you say, TV wise, you've probably done the biggest thing there's ever going to be in TV. <laughs> you know, and anything yeah. after that, I'm sure it might be exciting, but there's going to be a level of it's not going to be Game of Thrones, you know, or there's a good chance it won't. So, was there a conscious thought of I want to go and and play about in in films now? Yeah, definitely. But I, I think that that. That initially, that the desire to do film just came from the fact that you know I'd spent eight years on Game of Thrones, six months of the year for for eight years playing this same part, and I think I can speak for, this, for other Game of Thrones cast members when when I say that those characters are really quite challenging to play in terms of they're so they're so psychologically well drawn and so detailed, but you do have to carry a lot of pain about with you mm. for all that time, and sometimes you know when you when you have to play that character again after being off for six months. You can sort of feel a physical weight on you of everything, all the sort of history, all of the yeah. psychology, all the motives that you've got to carry around. And it was a long time to play those parts. And just practically, a film, you play a character intensively for a couple of months, three months, and then you're out of it and you just don't have to play them again. It's like a marathon versus a sprint. TV is like a long marathon, but a movie is like an intensive burst of work where you really get to know your character, but really get to know the people around you very well for that brief period of time. And then you move on to something else. And I think for a lot of Game of Thrones people, myself included, I think that was that was really appealing coming out yeah, of that. I can completely see that. I remember the, the, the one time I've had kind of a big role in a TV show, it was an NBC thing, and it's an absolute dream, but I am denerd over signing the contract because you think, right, if this is successful... Yeah, this could be my life for ten years. This, like, if if we get a second series, a third series, a fourth series, it's why on that show, debris. When we didn't get a second series, it wasn't the end. Like, I would have loved to, but equally, I was like, yeah. oh, I can do other things now. It was kind of I was expecting it to be a lot more heartbreaking than it was. If you know what I mean, it was like, cool, I'm free to do a million other things yeah. now. Whereas when you're locked into a series, and particularly with a show like Game of Thrones. It's gonna be pretty much. It will have been your life for that for that whole period, which is amazing. It's a, bl- a blessing, obviously, but equally, yeah, that variation's exciting too. And I think that's why I found, that's why when I came out of it, marry me. I didn't. I basically didn't work for a full year after yeah. Game of Thrones, and I was sort of surprised at that, really, because I thought you know people know that I'm available now, and surely there's going to be some interest, but they didn't seem to be, and. I think that was where some of the frustration came from, that, that a few things came in that were very, the, the character were either too similar to Sam or, the, or yeah. the show was too similar to Game of Thrones. I didn't want any comparisons to be drawn. So I just, I just got into a bit of a bad spell with it, just thinking I didn't know how to work my way out of it. And then 
Jen's people got in touch and just thought, oh, marry me. So it's a, it's a, it's a contemporary musical comedy, romantic comedy filmed in New York City with her and Maluma and Owen Wilson. It was literally, if, if I could have sort of created a dream job for myself coming out of it, my next job, it would have been Marry Me, something like Marry Me, just because... It's as far from Game of Thrones as possible, right? Tonally, setting-wise, everything. Exactly. And, and the character was, was, was different as well. There are, sort of, there, are, you know, there are certain shades of it that I bring to every character in terms of persona, but he, he wasn't a character that was necessarily sort of, you know, downtrodden and carried a lot of pain with him, was sort of kicked around by the world. He was actually a bit of a, bit of a go-getter and sort of confident yeah. and would go into a room and be a big personality in that room and sort of grab the room by the scruff of the neck. And he was very sort of proactive and had a very, a very dynamic energy about him. So, yeah, if, if and also another, another thing about it was that I was speaking to the producer, Elaine Goldsmith-Thomas, about this, and she said... We watched Game of Thrones, but actually we wanted you for this part when we saw you do an interview with Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah. They said, uh, they said we, we watched an interview and we liked your energy in it, and that made me feel brilliant as well because that was a bit like, oh, they don't want me for Game of Thrones necessarily, and they don't yeah. want me to bring bring that to this. They want they want me, and that was when I yeah. suddenly felt really valued, and it wasn't just they wanted the guy who played that character in Game of Thrones. They wanted me for myself and to bring something different to it, and... It was an enormous compliment, and yeah, I'll never forget. What, I'll never forget that I had a brilliant time on it, and yeah, it was sort of a, a real reset in terms of shedding that last layer of Samwell and that last that last few remnants of Game of Thrones, and really moving on to something else. And yeah, it was it was the sort of beginning of the next chapter, really. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a beautiful thing, right? To get that that validation as as the next thing that happens that validation that you're not just here because of that show you're not just that guy from that show you're you're an actor you're legitimate and this is yeah. this is a career now you know yeah it's it's uh it's 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 just uh, and also I, th- I think that since that happened and since 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 marry me i do feel slightly more ready to play characters that have shades of sam about them my character in moonfall mm. for example which which is the next film I did after Marry Me, he was, he's a sort of super intelligent, quite bookish, quite nerdish c- conspiracy theorist, really, who has a certain amount of passion about him, believes that believes what he believes to be true and won't listen to anybody who tells him otherwise. There's a lot of there's a lot of Samwell in there. Yeah. The his energy is very different. He's much more confident, he's much more bullish and much more aggressive in a way, and much more much more sort of proactive than Sam was. But a lot of those elements are shared between them. He's, he's how Sam Will would be in the social media era. Yeah. <laughs> because he will have had his paranoias and things all, all re- backed up and, and reinforced. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if he's Sam Will, if just a few more people would have sent him a tweet telling him that he was right about stuff. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> and and I, I just feel slightly more ready now to... to contact similar characters to that now because marry me was so different people can see that I've, i can do different things so now it's it's sort of made me less reluctant to really have that on my mind when i'm thinking about a new part and the thing about marry me and moonfall was that they were filmed a whole year apart wow but because of because of covid and because they wanted marry me to come out in cinemas and not just go straight to streaming they waited and waited and, and even though they were shot a year apart they came out a week apart wow it's just it's just mad the way it works, but yeah, but yeah, I've just just two very different things, but yeah, I'm just very very grateful to be involved with both of them, and and yeah, like it feels now that uh, you know it feels now that I, I'm sort of banishing some of those 
the last few ghosts from Game of Thrones and ready to just look look for. I mean, you, none of us will ever escape it completely just because, as you say, it was such a an all-encompassing thing. And also it was the first thing that so many of us did, so it's always going to be in the background somewhere. But the further you move away from it, the more the more you feel you can breathe. Exactly. Well, I mean, how was that then as it did come to an end? Because it was one of the most kind of viscerally divided and over-the-top reactions as well in TV history. It was so loved and so adored that it can never really have an ending that's going to make everyone happy. And it must have been strange for something that, again, you'd spent all of that time of your life coming to an end and then that ending is you know a mixed a mixed emotion yeah. as such like for, for, for you as the people who put your lives into this to do all of that and then have half the people fuming <laughs> and wanting yeah. it, it removed from the canon and stuff just all sorts just of crazy fan stuff that happens with anything that has real passion in the fan base star wars has had it like numerous huge things have had the kind of Remove yeah. that from the canon. Change this, or it's like you know. So, so how was that as a as a human? Because people forget that it's it's humans involved yeah. in this, and humans are, are behind this. Exactly. I think I, I think it was really extreme. I, I I think I think the reaction to the end of it, and that's uh, you know, that's something about the social media age as well that we were just talking about. Where back in the olden days, people used to watch a show, and if they didn't like it, they just turn the telly off and just say to each other in the room. Didn't think that was great, and they might talk about it at work the day after. But now, because people get can get straight on social media and put their opinion out there and find people mm. all over the world who have the same opinion of them, people get sort of um, it, it feels quite militant the, the way people sort yeah. of band together, depending on which side of the line they're on, whether they're whether they like the ending or against it. it suddenly feels very binary, and it suddenly feels like there are two warring factions who are both fighting to be fighting to be heard and. Um, and you know, I think I think it's, it's flattering in a way that people can be that that you know devoted to it and and in, that invested in it. But one thing that I've never been able to shake off is the idea that that's going around so much on on the social media at the time and on YouTube that the cast was somehow the cast somehow knew that it was going to be disappointing and knew that right. it wasn't going to be any good. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of it, the interview compilations where Game of Thrones cast you know, give their opinion on the final season. It's just completely taken out of context, little tiny reactions to a little tiny reactions to a thing. For example, there's an interview when somebody says to Amelia, what do you think of the final season? And she laughs and goes best season ever. And people now seem to think that that means, oh, she knew that it wasn't very good. And she was laughing because she she was awkward. But the fact is she was laughing because it's such a silly question, because what do you expect her to say? We're here promoting it. What do you think of it? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what that laughter was all about. Just yeah. because it's it, it, that's that's the only thing she could do to answer that question. But all of that stuff gets so taken out of context, and all these theories that we don't, you know, we we don't like David and Dan anymore, and we feel that that you know feel that the, the betrayal of that. And you do sometimes want to say that we love the show and we love our fans so much, but we we're not quite as invested in it as the fans of it are in, mm. in a certain way. We don't. We don't necessarily feel the anger that they feel and we don't necessarily feel the disappointment they feel. And also, we were genuinely, I think David and Dan were as well, and a lot of the cast were genuinely quite disappointed that some people didn't like it. Yeah, We, were, we, we weren't arrogant enough to think, oh, we'll just feed them any old shite and, and, and they'll just like it because it's Game of Thrones. When some of those reviews came in, I remember a lot of us just feeling sort of deflated and just thinking, oh, well, 
that's a shame. And, and David and Dan felt it as well. And going on to three-body problem that I'm doing with them now, I just so want it to be good for them because I really want them to restate restate their claim to being at the top of that tree, really. Because let's not forget, I know that the, the, the plot lines might have diverged and gone a different way, but David and Dan were still in charge of it when everybody thought it was the best thing yeah. they'd ever seen. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's the, it, it's the mad um, rewriting of history is when people are, are furious at the end. It's like, you've been... This has been an absolute joy in your life for years, like for years, for literally years. And then you didn't like the last little bit. And that means all of it's shit. And again, it's, it's, it's crazy. But equally, as, as you say, I think a lot of people could benefit from realizing that no one goes in and makes a bad film (laughs) or a bad TV show, bad TV shows and bad films happen. Make no mistake, yeah. but everyone exactly. involved will be believing this is going to be amazing. This is, and they will believe this is the the best series yet, and the best one we've done, and all this kind of because, yeah, that, that that's what you you want it to be, and it's it's in such a it's under a, such a microscope for you guys. It is your actual world that it's only when the rest of the world get their eyes on it that things yeah. change. If you know what I mean, the perspectives change, and people go, "Oh, I didn't like that," or "I did like that." That's always going to be a surprise to all involved. Always. And sometimes, like, even now, it's so pervasive. Like, not that I, not that I kind of obsess about these things, but you see these, these lists that are drawn up just for clickbait sometimes of the top 10 TV shows of all time. And it's not in it. Mm. And you think, well, it is in it. It is in it. It's 100% in it. It sort of must be, one must be in it. But the, the sort of that, that sense of disappointment becomes such a part of the agenda. Yeah, you're so right. Everything gets recalibrated and everything gets revised. And you just think, yeah, well, you know, we're really sorry that the people who didn't like the ending didn't like the ending, but it doesn't devalue everything that came before it when, you know, it's some of the greatest moments of telly ever, I think. And they still they still stand. Yeah, I, th- I think what I loved about it and why I've perfectly enjoyed the, the, the last season and everything was... Game of Thrones was never presenting itself as a high art, high intellect show, but it had that in it. It's like The Shield. Like The Shield is one of my favourite series of all time. And what I loved about that was it was presenting itself as an over-the-top crazy thing. And then you get to certain episodes, you're like, that was actually a beautifully delicate writing. And Game of Thrones had all of that. I kind of, I remember tuning in. I'm sure I told you at the time we last spoke. I resisted watching it for ages because, like, nah, it doesn't sound my kind of thing. And then I binged a load over like a two-week period, and about three series in, I was like, the amount of interlacing and interlocking storylines yeah. is just astounding. And the fact that you can write a show that that doesn't really have a lead and doesn't really have yeah. a lead arc, really. There's so many arcs that become the lead for temporary times. It was genius, but yeah, again, yeah. then people then think. Yeah, again, like, how do you end that? What is the lead story to, to, to wrap up? What is the satisfying ending and so on and so yeah. forth? It's a, it's a weird one. Of course. I can't remember who said it. I think it might have been, I think it may have been Stephen King or somebody like that. Somebody who was very much qualified to make this call. They said, regardless of what you think about Game of Thrones and the, and the final two seasons, the writing challenge of intertwining all of these storylines to get everybody back to Winterfell for the start of season eight Mm. in terms of all of these various, the the paths that everybody has been on, 
everyone's various motivations and all the, the way their stories have sort of diverged to get them all back into that one location for, for that final season. It's just, it's just a, a sort of writing feat that, that should never really be underestimated, just how hard that was. It's so hard. I'm, I'm sort of... I'm sort of, you know, writing something at the moment with a, with a friend of mine, and it's just so unbelievably hard to just make all this mechanically work. I think I think that the thing about it is because people they they sort of see the dialogue and they see the action and they see the the top layer of it. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the sheer mechanics and the heavy lifting of the writing sometimes goes a bit unignored. And sometimes sorry, sometimes goes a bit goes a bit unappreciated. Yeah. It's only when you start to write something that you realise how hard that is and. I think I think a lot of the people who are very critical about anything, not just about this, about anything, should sort of try it for themselves and just realise sort of how difficult it is. Because I've never written anything, and now I'm trying it. I realise, God, it's almost impossible to to create something that mechanically works. It's honestly, it's what I love about podcasting over every other art is it's the easiest to go. If you don't like it, fucking make one yourself because everyone yeah. can like with films yeah. and tv not everyone can it's, it's not it's not really an option there's certain hurdles and things have to be overcome but we've like, as we found out in in the pandemic when almost everyone started a podcast it is one of them yeah. where you can go if you don't like it make one how you'd like it to be and then yeah. most people will see how hard it can be to do this week in week out and to deliver this and all this kind of thing but it's easy as you say to sit on the sideline and go ah that was shit so yeah, you start with a blank page. Start with a blank yeah. page and see and see how far you get. I know, and and you know that's the thing. That, that's the thing about about creativity that I've always been obsessed by, really, because because you don't really feel it as an actor necessarily, because you know things come to you. You you very rarely have to sort of originate an idea. Mm. That that creative impulse, or be it be it a sort of be it a be it a musician who signs a three album deal and they've done two and they've got to do one more or and a novelist that has to come up with an idea for a new novel yeah. from scratch. Just think, God, it just feels like such a sort of intangible skill, all of this stuff, to have to do it to order and just have to do it because, not because you want to or not because you're inspired to do it, because you just have to do it. You have to have an idea. Yeah. That, that, I, I sort of find the pressure of that quite, quite overwhelming. And that's why, you know, I spoke a lot about the, the get, get back the Beatles thing. Yeah. About how I think that's such an insight into creativity in terms of you know, they had to be creative, but they had to they had to write ten songs in three weeks. Yeah. And, and what what the pressure of that is like. I think I think an insight into creativity gives you a completely different opinion on it where you know and anybody can just idly think, Oh, that'd be a good story. But if somebody says to you, You need to write this by next week, where is it? Yeah. You have to force that creativity out that creativity out of yourself. It's just, it's just. I've got so much respect for anybody who even attempts to do it. Mate, I couldn't relate more to what you're you're saying at the moment. A few scripts I've had in development recently have meant that production companies have come to me about other things and been like, "Oh, would you be interested?" And the amount of times they'll put something forward, and I'll be like, "Well, no, that's not that's yeah. not my idea." Like, I can write the random idea that's come into my head for days. Yeah. I can dive into that. This is this is just come naturally. Whereas where they we'd like something in this area, so I, yeah. Oh no, I've not got, <laughs> I've not got a thing. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm at exactly. the level of if I've got an idea, I can be passionate about it and write that. Yeah. That passion will bleed into the page. If you're approaching me to say, "Can you write about this?" Then it's like, nah. And all of them yeah. so far, I've just ended up going, "I'm not the one for this, mate." I really appreciate it. I love it, but at this stage in my 
career. I'm yeah. not the one for this. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, not capable of it. Exactly. I remember Billy Connolly talking about stand up and and the pressures of that. I just found it so it's so relatable and sort of so insightful when he said that people who stand at the bar and they're funny or they're funny in company who thinks they could be a stand up comedian. Yeah. It, it bears so little relation to the job of actually doing it. Yeah. The job of the, the light goes off and the audience, your light comes on and you have to go out and do it every single night, whether, whether it's the last thing in the world that you want to do or not. Yeah. People talk about actors and people talk about musicians and people talk about footballers and, and various people in the public eye. And you think, oh, they get paid so much money to act or they get paid so much money to play football. And you think what they actually get paid for, what, 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 what the what what the key of the job actually is is being the public face of something that could go badly wrong. Yeah, that's sort of where it comes from. It's it's standing on stage and knowing that if it goes wrong, everybody's going to blame you for it. It's your fault, hundred percent. It's no one it's else's your fault. fault. It's a hundred percent your fault. If you if if you if you get paid quarter of a million quid a week, for example, and you miss a penalty which sends you sort of with with poor Bukayo Saka in the Euros, yeah. you miss a penalty that sends your country out of a competition. Mm-hmm. Just think, you can say that he's been paid that money to kick that football, but what he's actually been paid for is to shoulder the burden of all of that responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And given, <clears throat> I think, I think a lot of people, given the choice, would probably choose to not do that. Yeah. They, cho- they choose to the, the comfortable life of of judging and looking in because to actually do that, to actually put yourself forward like that. There's more to it than just the skill that's on show. It's about having the shoulders broad enough to deal with the pressure of it, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. It's 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 unimaginable at, at times. Again, sports is a prime easy example because it, it can be bizarre who will become the person that gets that focus and that pressure yeah. and everything else will be forgotten. If a goalie lets in a silly goal, no one will yeah. remember the 90 minutes when... Exactly. no chances were made up front or the midfield yeah. who weren't holding on to the ball it'll all be that yeah. that one moment yeah. that that goalie slipped up and it's like yeah yeah and it's in similar way if, if you have a a dodgy couple of episodes people that seem duty bound to forget about seven yeah. and seven and a half other seasons yeah. of unbelievable yeah. telly so i think that it's just it's just a it's just a natural human impulse and the power goes to the negative and and people seem to sort of delight in other people getting yeah. it wrong sometimes in quite in quite a sort of vicious way, I think. And it's just, you know, you can't really blame anybody because it's just human nature, you know. People are much rather, if you're scrolling through your phone and you see a one-star review for a film, you're probably more likely to read it than a, a three- or four-star review yeah. for a film. Yeah, Just because there's something about it that we find sort of compulsive about seeing somebody have a misstep on such a big stage that, that you know it's i i hate i hate the side of myself that does that as well and you know but everybody's guilty of it sometimes it's just a it's just one of those very human things yeah you're drawn to to, to it at times well you spoke earlier about growing up in the north not really knowing that acting was an option that it was a career that would be available to you surely in that growing up at some point you watched the railway children because it's you know it's such a key part of the of british childhood i feel it is it's one of those films the tv movie and the and yeah and and the cinematic release so how was it to then get on board with this the the railway children return well it was it was quite daunting at first because because i i was i was told about it by the producer Gemma rogers 
She was a he was a hero of mine because she produced League of Gentlemen and things like that. And yeah. she did she did uh, I did a Les Dawson thing for Sky with Steve Pemberton a couple of years ago, and she produced that as well. So she said that we were that they were going to do another Railway Children, and my first reaction was, "Oh, it's not a remake, is it?" Mm-hmm. I, 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 I just I would have been so reluctant to get involved in a remake because, as you say, the original is so people have such affection for it, and it has such a place in people's hearts that I didn't want to go anywhere near a remake. And she said, and it's, and it's no, so it's, set in a, a a place in time that it's not like you're going to update it. If you know what I mean, it, you would have to go yeah. back. It's like there's no need that that the originals yeah. are still there. <laughs> no, there's, exactly. there's no need to remake exactly. it. Yeah. And as soon as she said that to me, I thought, oh well, this is going to be some kind of you no know, the, the the sort of station master of uh, Mr. Perk's character. Yeah, and I knew that there was going to be some kind of connection with that, and I just didn't want. If she said, you know, would you like to play the same part as Bernard Cribbins played in the original? I would have been a bit. I would have been very reluctant to do that and probably not have done it just because I think you're on a hide into nothing if you, yeah. you're inviting those kind of comparisons. But she said, no, it's actually a sequel and it's set 50, it's set in the 40s, so it's set sort of 50 years after the first film. And that's got to be what, that's got to be a record for the, the, the most amount of time in between an original film and a yeah. sequel, I imagine. Yeah. I can't remember there's many films with 50 years in between parts one and two. And when I was... Um, talking to people about it i just said i'm going to do a railway children follow-up and as soon as you mention it their faces just light up because yeah. they have such amazing memories of growing up with that film so our, our entire generation has grown up with it usually on sort of television on saturday sunday afternoons and that's when you really feel that it's a privilege to be involved in something like this but when you're dealing with something that people have such affection for it's an incredible responsibility because we just don't want to sully you know just sully that lineage and and get it so badly wrong that it sort of takes something away from the original. But the script was wonderful. Danny Brocklehurst wrote this amazing script. Amazing writer from Brassic to all the um, loads of Netflix stuff he does. Yeah. I think he's such an engaging writer. Everything from what the few times I've had scripts of his to audition, I've messaged him about this before, the dialogue goes in like that. And you yeah, know it's really good writing when the dialogue just goes in. It's, it's a bizarre yeah. kind of unexplainable thing that you read it once, yeah. like, oh, I know these these lines, and it's, yeah, astounding writing. Yeah, exactly. And as soon, as soon as I knew that he'd written the script for this, I was kind of intrigued because I thought, I associate Danny's work, it's quite reductive probably, but I associate his work with, with sort of things that are quite gritty and sometimes quite, quite dark, you know what I mean, quite, quite full-on and quite yeah. deal with moral sort of ambiguity and I just thought all the Harlan Coburn stuff that 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 they do all that kind of thing yeah exactly so how's that going to fit into a sort of railway children moment which is a very sort of cozy comfy quite sort of um you know a comfortable nostalgic film to watch and then I read the script and I realized that this this film does pay a lot of homage to the original film tonally and it's very of the period but we've not shied away from some really big issues in this Mm -hmm. film in order to make it a, a relevant watch 50 years later. I'm not giving away too much, but the main crux of the um, of the story is about a, a black American soldier that's deserted the army because of segregation between black soldiers and white soldiers in the US Army at mm-hmm. that time. He's run away because because he just doesn't feel like he belongs. He feels like he's fighting for a country that doesn't respect him yeah. and doesn't want him and doesn't treat him yeah. the way that he deserves to be treated. And that, you know, when you consider what the Railway Children, the original one was, to suddenly introduce this element to it and the idea that 
you get this this rural idyll where life is lived in microcosm and suddenly we're introducing this very thorny topic of institutionalized racism within the army into it. It feels like, it feels actually like a very effective platform on which to do that. Because, but a very real one as well. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Something that was genuinely a huge issue at that point. It's it's beautifully done in that respect. That it's it's yeah. as you say, it makes it feel relevant to so much of what's going on in the world uh, uh, today. But it doesn't feel yeah. forced at all. It feels historically accurate and re- yeah. relevant and important. You know? Yeah, exactly. We, we shot the film a year ago, and it's so interesting what's happened in the world since then. That there, there's the institutionalized racism angle to it, which, which was already, which was already obviously being spoken about in twenty last year because of mm-hmm. world events and stuff. But on top of that, you also get which we never could have planned for the idea of evacuate evacuated children fleeing a war zone to safety. That yeah. suddenly becomes yeah. very pertinent. And there's a scene where Jenny Agatha's character Bobby says that she's she's uh, she became a, uh, in, involved in the suffragette movement mm. uh, in the intervening years since the film. So we think, God, oh, we're dealing with in the in a film set in the forties, we're dealing with it, children, the effect of war on children, institutionalized racism, and women's rights. And yeah. it's sort of it's sort of a thing that God. The world has changed superficially since the 40s. But when you hear about stuff like that, you think, God, it's not changed enough and we've still yeah. got a long way to go. And I'm not saying that our film is our film can solve any of those problems because it can't, but it's just it's just a thing about, you know, we can we can try and feel superior and more developed than people in the people of 80 years ago. But the fact is that a lot of the the sort of most rotten and cancerous problems in society are still there in one form or another. And I just find that, I think it's a really interesting backdrop to to present those problems in front of. I completely agree. And it's, again, it's right in a historically pertinent piece that draws parallels you wish it didn't draw. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You you wish it was just a historical, oh, look at this, look how bad things were. Um, But you, I mean, you mentioned mentioning the railway children's people and people's, faces lighting up my face lit up when that train was pulling into the platform and jenny agatha's on the platform rather than on on the other side of it and you're there right next to her how was that to be in in that moment to kind of to remain an actor and remain in your character when you're it's said it's a special moment man as you say there's there's not 50 year apart's sequels that that involve yeah. some of the same characters and stuff like that and yeah it was it was extraordinary really and and you know we're, we're very fortunate to have jenny on board which you pardon me pardon the expression <laughs> because because she uh you know there's so many people who have so much affection for the original whose knives would really be sharpened when they realize there's going to be a sequel yeah they'll be they'll be sort of good in for it and, and they some people may not want it to succeed and you know what i didn't you know you try and not think about it but there are certain types of people who probably don't want a black character in this film. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, 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 it's very sad, and it really it really gives you a heavy heart to think it. But there are some traditionalists. Oh yeah, I I, I put the poster on Twitter, and and Abe, uh, the the soldier character, is very prominent on the poster. And somebody's the first response was, "Oh, there wouldn't be a black child in, in the forties in Yorkshire." I was thinking, a don't be a cunt, yeah. and b. <laughs> And B, you've clearly not watched it, then, have you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're not invested in finding out what he what he is doing there. You just yeah. assume something based on your own prejudices. And so there, there are a lot of people who maybe sort of have their knives sharpened, but because we've got Jenny there, 
Jenny feels like the sort of gatekeeper of all of that. It feels like yeah. sort of a, a seal of approval to have her involved in it. And, you know, she'll, she'll go out to bat for this film. And if anybody's got the right to defend a Railway Children's sequel, it's Jenny. So yeah. without her, without her, it just lacks so much integrity. But also, you know, we shot the film on the same station that they shot the original as well. Mm. Uh, in yeah. in uh, in Yorkshire, and the fact that I was That's playing, amazing. I was playing. You know, Bernard Cribbins was going to reprise his role at, at certain points, but for various reasons he couldn't, and his part got less and less. And they introduced me wholesale to sort of take on that function. So the fact that I was playing a new generation of the Perks family, but standing on the same station platform as Bernard Cribbins did, looking out across a landscape that hasn't really changed in 50 years and have Jenny Agatha there with me. I mean, there are some moments where you really do feel that you've, you've stepped into your childhood. Yeah. And, and that really was one of them. And yeah, it was just a real privilege to be part of it. And, and yeah, yeah, responsibility as well, as I said, because a lot of people have such, have such great affection for it. But I think that if people are open to new ideas, we've, we've managed to very, I say we, Danny and the director Morgan and Gemma Rogers, the producer, found a way to have the flavor of the original and, you know, it's a very nostalgic film to watch, but also just introduce these new elements to it, which elevate it and make it a very pertinent film to watch in 2022. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, speaking of seals of approval, Tom Courtney is a living legend in my eyes, and it feels like we've come full circle, because if there's ever an example of someone who has proved how long a career can be, he's had iconic movies in so many decades it's unimaginable yeah. and there's been ups and downs like he's he's, he's always yeah. been there but he'll then pop up and you'll be like oh wow there's he's still one of the best actors yeah. in the world and that kind of thing must be inspirational right as soon as you see that name on on the call sheet or on the lineup you must go all right here yeah. we go you know this is yeah, this has well, got caliber exactly. exactly because because i think that that you know he shouldn't be forgotten not that I want to sort of bang the northern drum all the time, but it shouldn't yeah. be forgotten about what that generation of actors in the 60s, working class northern actors like yeah. Tom and like Albert Finney yeah. and actors like that, they completely, they completely kicked the door open. Yeah. And they, and they sort of wrestled, wrestled the acting profession away from a certain type of very mannered, you know, sort of actors came from a certain section of society and they weren't working class and they, weren't, they didn't have an edge to them and they didn't really have any grit to them. They were just very mannered sort of actors in the classical style. Yeah. But Tom and Albert and all those great actors, they just they just set a template which all working class actors from the north or the south or from you know from anywhere you care to mention in this country, they're all following in that line and they were real trendsetters and trailblazers. And I'm, I, I did a I did an interview with Tom like a joint interview just now, and somebody said to him, "Did you know that you were on the at the forefront of like a new movement?" And he said, hundred percent, yes." Because Amazing. because we look we, we look behind us in terms of the footsteps and there was nobody really like us behind us. Yeah. So, so they did feel that, that they, they were just a whole new generation of untapped talent and to get to work with somebody like that when he's you know, in his 80s, it just feels like an amazing privilege and yeah, it really connects you with a history of cinema in this country that's just you know, it just blows your mind to think you're in a film with Tom Courtney all of a sudden. It's it's crazy. That's gotta fire you up and even, you know, these press junkets and stuff can get exhausting and can be a tiresome part of promotion particularly when you're on to the next project but knowing you are you doing a press with tom courtney must kind of give you an extra an extra buzz i remember doing a live interview once with um 
Dr. John Cooper Clark. I remember I don't do a lot of, particularly back then, I wasn't up for a lot of live interviews. As soon as I was asked to do one alongside Dr. John Cooper Clark, I was like, yeah, yeah, man, even just to get the best seat in the house, even just to of be course. sat there watching. And that must have a similar yeah. feel with with Tom Courtney, right? Yeah, yeah Tom Courtney, but, 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 oh, you know, a lot of the actors that, a lot of the, the, the older generation of actors that I've worked with, particularly Tom and particularly uh, also... Jonathan Price, yeah. who I got to know on Game of Thrones, but I didn't, um, I didn't work with him, and now he's come onto a three-body problem, and I'm seeing him a lot more. There's just something, there's just a sort of, um, a sort of attitude and a calmness that descends on people when they've achieved so much that they don't feel they've got to prove anything anymore. Yeah, and, and Jim Broadbent, who I got to work with closely in that season of Game of Thrones, was the same. There's a lot of that sort of competitive, bullish, bumptious sort of hunger has, has faded away, but the twinkle still remains and you can just tell that they're doing it now because they really love it. And it's interesting to work with kids actually on this, to work with Tom on one end of the spectrum and these young kids who are sort of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, they both share something in terms of they're both doing it because they love it and they don't have to do it. A little kid doesn't have to do it. He's just still enjoying it and Tom doesn't have to do it. He's enjoying it. It's yeah. in the middle where the stress of a career gets to you and think, oh, is this, is this a good part for me to be doing now? Are they getting paid more than I am? Am I missing out on this job because I'm doing this job? So to be surrounded by people at different ends of that spectrum of a career and just feeding their energy and seeing how much they're enjoying it just creates such a lovely atmosphere. Well, I mean, as we start to wrap things up, speaking of that sparkle in the eye and the passion, I saw on your Instagram the other day that you were hanging out with uh, Francis Bourgeois, yeah. the, 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 the train fan, the train spotting fan, who's just got such yeah. a passion. How was that to meet this, this young man whose absolute unfiltered excitement and passion for trains? I think at first got him attention to kind of look at and laugh at and i think that yeah. quickly switched to looking at and going oh my god how beautiful is this how what an aspirational yeah. thing to be this yeah. unfiltered passionate about about something how was that man you've met a lot of, of of amazing people but that must have been a weirdly special one i absolutely fell in love with him i was i i, I was in love with him anyway as as so many people are now yeah. because of his his enthusiasm and just his purity but but part of me because because life is the way it is and you can get sort of toughened up by the world sometimes part of me when i first was introduced to him was a bit like well, he can't be for real. <laughs> he can't be. Yeah. And, I, I, and I think a lot of people were trying to dig up things from his past that burst that bubble, really, and, and sort of maybe, oh, no, it's just a character that he does, and he's, and he's cynically playing on people's mm. thing. And, and I went into a meeting him thinking, I hope that I don't see a little look behind that curtain. I hope that nothing, I, I hope that I don't come away from this with my illusions totally shattered. And I spoke to him for, for an hour or so, and he's just everything you expect him to be. He's it. genuinely, he's genuinely having the having the time of his life, and and I, I find I find it really moving. I find I find him his his attitude and his passion really moving, and also the public's affection for him. I find that really moving as well. That we take people like that to our hearts, and I, and I had a I had a sort of um, a, a quite intimate heart to heart with him about. I'm not going to you know it's not my place to say some of the things that he said just about how suddenly he's become very famous and the challenges of dealing with that and and what that means for him. And we really and we really bonded over that because he's he's one of those people who genuinely has got no strategy and no game plan and wasn't yeah. doing it and watching his follower count go up and thinking oh, I'm I'm about a million followers now isn't that amazing 
he just he's, he's just really enjoying his life and and doing what he loves doing and people can just go along for the ride and I found him really inspirational and really lovely and he's one of those people when you meet him you come away from it feeling you're a better person and yeah it was a lovely lovely day there uh, did you ever catch a guy in Manchester a singer-songwriter called Gideon Conn Oh, he's, yeah. he's an amazing guy and a similar he's got this very um he's got a great innocence and a great enthusiasm and it was a similar thing i took him on tour with us once and a lot of people were like it's got to be an act though right he's he's not really yeah. like, like it's got to be an act for on stage and i remember coming out after a sound ch- ch- checking once and hearing his beautiful voice and i go out yeah. and he's just in the car park he's got a bucket of hot water and soap off the venue and he's he's washing his car and just wow. singing in the sun and it was wow. just it just epitomized the beauty of this of this yeah. soul that he's just the happiest guy in the world just singing yeah. away as he washes his car and it that it's came to amazing. mind as soon as you were talking about that with Francis yeah. there of expecting to see behind the curtain a bit and then going oh no yeah this is just a wonderful passionate human you get these one offs don't you sometimes and Another person who's like that is Carl Pilkington. Yeah, yeah. Carl, everybody thought that they were going to crack Carl Pilkington one day and yeah. he was going to be revealed yeah. to be not quite all that he was. And you know what? Sometimes you do just get genuine one-offs. And I think when you get them, especially at first, the public take a while to become accustomed to them because yeah. because they're probably because they're 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 toughened up and they're cynical about things like that but no occasionally you just do get good people and their presence in the world is so beneficial to the world that they can't sort of be ignored i love it i love it it's a beautiful positive note to uh, to uh, to end on what's ahead mate what's what's the plan obviously you're finishing up um a three-body problem right finishing up three-body problem yeah it's been it's been a it's been an epic shoot we've we've been doing it for yeah that sounds like a long and we'll yeah we'll be ending it we'll be ending it over the summer but yeah, just just wanting to um, just having a having a ball with it again. I said that I wanted to, the films were my priority, and I didn't want to sort of go back into big telly anytime soon. But David and Dan called me up and they said, "Keep the end of two twenty twenty one free because we've written a part for you in our new thing." Beautiful. And I thought, I thought that, that was awesome, and they said it's the character that's as close to your real self as you'll ever play anywhere. And when that. you hear that, you think. Oh, and now I'm going to find out what they really think about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Scared to read that script. Who's this prick? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, it's, exactly. <laughs> but it's genuinely so much fun. And, it, I, I, you know, I, I've been such a blast with them. And it's, it's almost a part that people who don't know me really well would never give me. Yeah. Because people have seen the work that I do and they've seen the characters that I play. It's only because they know the real me that they're that they're sort of, letting me have this platform to play a completely different type of character. And I think that they've changed my life once 12 years ago and changed my career. And it feels like giving me this part, they've changed it all over again. And I don't know when it's going to be on, probably well, almost certainly next year sometime, but they've changed the rules of television once in Game of Thrones. And this show is just so epic and they've not taken the easy way out. They've not gone easy on themselves. Parts of it are going to make Game of Thrones, I think, look quite small in scale. So... (laughs) I, I I love them and I love it and uh, I hope it's I hope it's works for them and I hope it's great and I hope that some people sort of take back some of the mean things that they've said about them in the last couple of years. Mate, I love it and it's been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time, man. What a pleasure! Thank you so much, Pip. It's always a delight to speak to you, mate. And let's do it again. Hundred percent.
You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was another lovely conversation with John. Speaking of lovely conversations, check out series one of my new podcast, Tell Me About It, with Scroobius Pip and Stuart Whiffin. God, I've got a stammer there. We talk about that a bit in one of the episodes, but we'll talk about that more in series two, I'd imagine. But yeah, anyway, check that out. Check out everything that me and John talked about. Check out the entire back catalogue. Yeah, I'm saying if this is your first episode, I want you to go back and dedicate your life to listening to 469 other episodes of the Distraction Pieces podcast. But the bonus is you can do it for free. So it's free entertainment. It will fill your days. Yeah, and there'll be more as well. I'll be back next week. So until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.